A quick disclaimer about the recreations you're about to hear. In most cases, we can't know exactly what was said. Those scenes are dramatizations based on historical research. Alpha, I'm UK and this is the ITK Podcast. Afiwe, on hearing the knock at the door, rushed out of her room to the living area. Today was the day, she thinks to herself, and hurriedly puts on her shoes. I'm leaving, mommy. She yells at her mother, before dashing out the door. She makes her way to her cousin's house. Ntando, Ntando, are you ready? I am. I'm just finishing up breakfast. Hurry up. Everyone is leaving now. Ntando wolfs down his isidudu and heads out with his younger cousin. My God, he thinks to himself, why did I even ask her if she wanted to come? It's just a protest, not a party, the 20-year-old wonders to himself as he tries to catch up with his 15-year-old cousin. They join the growing crowd headed towards the police station, chanting their campaign slogans. I'm so happy a lot of people came out. We need serious change in this country. I'm sure just like us, they are tired of having our basic rights being denied. It's not fair that we have to march and protest to be treated like human beings. I hate it. That's why I want to be a lawyer. Helping people assert their basic rights will be great. On arrival at the police station, there is already a large contingent of police officers in riot gear and armored cars waiting for the protesters. Mr. Solo and the other members of the PAC Executive Council make themselves to the front of the crowd and towards the officers, asking they be let through. When asked by the officers, Mr. Solo said they were all there to turn in themselves to be arrested for refusing to use their passes. After having their demand refused by the police, the crowd of protesters continue chanting their campaign slogans. Chants of our land and down with the passes make their way through the crowd. By noon, the crowd of a few hundred people had grown to that of about 5,000. The policemen in turn had called for backup from neighboring towns, yet they were still greatly outnumbered 300 to 5,000. The outnumbered officers were visibly afraid of the large group of protesters. The protesters, sensing the apprehension, in turn taunt the officers. Jokes at the officers' expense elicit rounds of laughter from different parts of the crowd. Afiwe notices a fight break out between protesters and tries to get Ntando's attention. Ntando, look, they are fighting over there. Ntando strains and spots the fighting protesters. It's two men shoving each other back and forth while yelling in the process. The fight causes more protesters to move forward as they want to catch a glimpse of the conflict. One of the men is accidentally shoved into an officer. Already uneasy with the advancing crowd, an officer on an armored car panics and shoots into the crowd. The other officers join in and also fire on the crowd. The crowd panics 
and protesters start running to get away from the shooting officers. The retreating protesters are still being fired on by the police. Ntando is panicked. He cannot find Afiwe anywhere. When the shooting started, his instincts took over and he just ran. He faintly remembers his cousin running beside him, but with the chaos in the crowd, they got separated. He heads back to the station after the shooting ends to find his cousin. The scene at the station could be described as nothing but hellish. There are mangled bodies on the ground, people wailing, injured people crying for help, and those looking for loved ones. Mutando keeps calling out for his cousin while walking around. The image he sees next crushes him. Not far from him, lying there, is Afiwe's body. Sixty-nine people were murdered by white officers that day, on March 21st, 1960. Of the casualties, ten were children and eight were women. Before that 180 were injured in the chaos, most of them paralyzed for life because they were shot in the back while running away. The Sharpville massacre was a watershed moment in South African history. The images of the murdered protesters were plastered on TV screens and newspapers around the world. As a result, South Africa became more isolated on the international stage with increasing global opposition to apartheid. Widespread condemnation poured in from all over the world. Well, not from the entire world. The Mississippi State House of Representatives voted a resolution in support of the South African government for, quote, its steadfast policy of segregation and the adherence to their traditions in the face of overwhelming external agitation. A major effect of the massacre was the change in policy of anti-apartheid organizations like the African National Congress and the Pan-African Congress. They both decided to switch their protest tactics from that of passive resistance to armed struggle. In order to do this, despite being banned by the government after the massacre at Sharpville, they formed paramilitary organizations. For the African National Congress, Nkonto Wesizwe was formed, which means Spear of the Nation, in Hosa. It was a brainchild of prominent ANC leaders like Walter Sisulu, Oliver Tambo, and Nelson Mandela. The paramilitary organization for the Pan-African Congress was called the Azanian People's Liberation Army. Nkonto Wesizwe, or MK for short, immediately went to work on its campaign of armed struggle against the South African government. In June 1961, Mandela sent a letter out to newspapers warning them that MK would launch a campaign of sabotage against government installations unless a solution was made about apartheid. On December 16th, MK launched their campaign against the South African government and they did so in a really extravagant way with 57 bombings. 
They followed this up with more bombings on New Year's Eve 1961. The ANC leadership then sent Mandela outside the country on a PR tour to other African countries and England to drum up support for the movement. See, these moves got the attention of someone across the Atlantic, good old Uncle Sam and the CIA. Mandela became a key person of interest to the CIA due to his influence in South Africa and also due to his communist ties. On August 5, 1962, Mandela was arrested by the South African authorities, who had been tipped off by the CIA of his location. He was interred at Johannesburg's Marshall Square Prison while awaiting trial. He was charged with inciting worker strikes and leaving the country illegally. Mandela was sentenced to five years in prison on October 1st, 1962. The loss of Mandela did not deter MK one bit. They continued their campaign of sabotage. Between December 1961 and July 1963, MK successfully conducted 193 acts of sabotage. MK's campaign would not last very long, as the South African government got their most decisive victory against the ANC when on March 13, 1963, 19 key members of MK were arrested in a government raid. The 19 were a diverse group, which in a way symbolized ANC's pluralistic approach to ending apartheid. They consisted of five Jewish South Africans, one Afrikaner, three Indians, four Hosas, and two Sotos. Eleven of them were prosecuted during the Rivonia trial, where they, including Mandela, were charged with treason for trying to overthrow the government and sabotage. The ANC smartly used the trial to draw international attention to their cause. During the trial, Mandela gave his famous I am prepared to die speech. In the speech, he explained why the ANC had abandoned non-violent protest in favor of armed resistance and sabotage. He explained that every time the ANC had non-violent protests, the government would respond with violence to enforce its rules. The Sharpville massacre was one of the examples Mandela used to prove his point. He asserted that by the government which uses force to support its rule, teaches the oppressed to use force to oppose it. Initially, the South African government wanted the death sentence for Mandela and his colleagues, but after intense international pressure, opted to sentence them to life instead. After the sentencing, the South African government basically won its struggle against anti-apartheid. ANC went into hiding in 1964 after its leaders were either incarcerated or in exile outside the country. The late 60s to the early 70s were a dark time for the anti-apartheid struggle in South Africa. Everything, however, would change in 1976. The Afrikaans' medium decree of 1974 forced all black schools in South Africa to use a 50-50 mix of Afrikaans and English for instruction. The issue with this was Black South Africans viewed the Afrikaans language as the language of oppression due to apartheid. 
most favored learning English as opposed to Afrikaans. The intent of the decree was to reverse the declining use of Afrikaans among the black population. Afrikaans was to be used in teaching mathematics, arithmetic, and social studies, while English would be used in teaching general science and practical studies like woodwork and metalwork. Indigenous languages would only be used to teach music, religious studies, and physical education. Tensions grew to a boiling point on April 30th, 1976, when students of Orlando West Junior School in Soweto went on strike, refusing to attend classes. This act of rebellion would spread like wildfire to other schools in Soweto. A student from Morris Isaacson High School called Teboho Mashinini called for a meeting on June 13th to discuss further action. It was during this meeting that the students formed the Soweto Student Representative Council and they set June 16th as the day they would have their voices heard. On June 16th, between 10,000 and 20,000 students gathered at Orlando Stadium in a rally to protest. The student leaders strongly urged their fellow protesters to keep the protest peaceful in a bid to not provoke the policemen that had started lining up the roads in the town. Sadly, this approach still didn't stop things from ending in a disaster. The policemen released their police dog after the students who retaliated by killing the dog. And once again, the South African police force responded by firing live rounds of ammunition at the crowd of students who ranged in age from 12 to 19 years old. It's estimated that between 176 to 700 people were killed that day, majority of whom were students. Though the South African government disputes that figure and alleges that just 23 students were killed. The number of wounded students totaled over a thousand. Emergency clinics all over Soweto were swarmed with a large number of wounded and bleeding students arriving for treatment. The reaction to the shootings were universally negative, both home in South Africa and abroad. White South African students in Johannesburg marched in solidarity. The most important result of the uprising was that it re-energized the anti-apartheid movement. A lot of the student leaders that organized the protest and survived joined the ANC and MK to continue the resistance. The re-energized MK launched a new campaign of sabotage from the late 70s through the 80s. Entering the 80s, the South African government was under tremendous pressure. Protests and strikes organized by the anti-apartheid movement had stalled the economy. In addition to the internal pressure on the economy, mounting pressure on developed countries to boycott or sanction the South African government started yielding results. Private companies and organizations started pulling their investments out of South Africa in protest of apartheid. This economic pressure saw the South African government attempt a number of policies geared towards a more benign form of apartheid in order to abate the pressure. Fortunately, both internal and external critics 
saw through this attempt and kept up the pressure. 1986 saw the South African government, led by the clerk, start secret negotiations aimed towards a transition from apartheid. Key imprisoned ANC leaders, Govan Mbeki and Walter Sisulu, were released from prison in 87 and 89 respectively. Mandela's release from prison in 1990 and the repeal of apartheid laws in 91 signaled the end of apartheid in South Africa. The Sharpeville massacre and the anti-apartheid movement for me shared a lot of parallels with the Lekitoge massacre in Nigeria and the NSARS movement. In both situations, you had people not asking for a lot of concessions from their government. They simply wanted to be treated as people. In the case of the black South Africans, they wanted freedom in the land of their ancestors, while for Nigerians, it was simply justice. You have governments in both situations who weren't interested in making any concessions, rather resorting to violence to silence its opposition. Again, in both situations, you had widespread riots in the aftermath that largely saw regular people take the brunt of it. I wanted to make an episode earlier on the NSARS protest, but didn't because of two reasons. The first was, like most people, the emotions were too raw then, and whatever I would have put out would have been too reactive. The other reason was how recent it was. The whole point of this podcast is to make history interesting to listen to, while ensuring the information you get is as accurate as I can present it. It would have been really hard to do that, especially after the Lekki Toge massacre and the misinformation we had flying around on social media. Eventually, when I sat down and got to making an episode around this, I felt Sharpville made for a perfect device. Apartheid was formally legalized in South Africa in 1948, even though for over a century prior, it had been in practice. When it comes to rooting out institutionalized evils like that, it takes years and in most cases, decades. There were a lot of setbacks that happened along the way. There is the Sharpville massacre that left a whole generation of black South Africans discouraged and things got worse when all the major leaders like Mandela and Sisulu were imprisoned. The anti-apartheid movement even faded away for a few years, only to be revived by the tragedy of school children being murdered in the Soweto uprising. The movement had to constantly change their tactics and approach. It took 33 years after Sharpeville for South Africa to end apartheid. A lot of people that fought in the movement didn't live to see the fruits of their actions. The Lekito Gate massacre for me seemed a lot like Sharpeville in that you saw a whole generation demoralized and scarred by the actions of their government. Sharpeville also encouraged me because it showed that despite setbacks and traumas incurred, fighting for a better future will always win out. Sadly, not everyone will get to see that future, but their actions make it possible for those coming after them. Now, I'm not arrogant enough to lie to you and say that things will one day get better. Things could always, always get much worse. What I can say is, 
as long as there are people fighting to improve things, the greater our chance of seeing that brighter future. Next week on the podcast, we will be covering the origin of the Ghana Must Go bag in true ITK fashion. I'm UK and this has been the ITK Podcast. <laughs>